0: Welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy Bar Chat Podcast. This is Tristan Stevenson. On this episode, I am talking to Pippa Guy and Joey Medrington. Pippa is the new Tanqueray Gin Ambassador in the UK, but made her name as a member of the multi-award winning team at the Savoy Hotel's American Bar. Joey is a long time fixture on the UK bar scene, having cut his teeth at Tiger Lily in Edinburgh, and worked for various groups and brands in London, including London Cocktail Club. He's now back in Edinburgh and once again working for the Montpellier Group, now as Group Bar Development Manager. On this episode, we discuss hospitality as a skill and art form. We discuss what makes a good host, how different environments require a different approach to hosting, how recent events have changed the role of the host, challenges that have come about as a result of recent events, how to manage compliments and complaints, and much, much more. Hope you enjoy it. Okay, I am joined remotely in this studio by Pippa Guy and Joey Medrington. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Well, Guy and Medrington, I should say. Well, two guys. (laughs) Two exactly. There you go. Um, How are you doing?
1: Very well. Very well, thank you. First day of a week's holiday. So I couldn't think of a better way to spend it than with you.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for making us a part of your holiday, Joey. No problem at all. (laughs) Pippa, how are you doing?
2: Yeah, great. Thank you been on a lovely long muddy walk today. So, um, glad our videos aren't on, but happy to <laughs> uh crack on and have a chat.
0: It's first day for you as well doing something as well. Do you want to talk uh, this is this I only found out like a week or two ago, but go on. You 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 tell us what this it is your first day of.
2: Um, it is my first day of being Tanqueray brand ambassador for the UK.
0: What's the week got in store for you? Are you um like straight to the headmaster's office tomorrow or
2: pretty much yeah uh sit down with bedron tomorrow morning and and take it from there
0: well good luck with it you i think you're ideal for a role like that and it's a cool job as well i think tanker ambassador is a fantastic role um, especially in the uk you know i mean gin being gin and being a, you know it's a british product and all that
2: yeah thank you i'm really excited
0: good stuff um so we i mean we've met a few times over the years pip we did some recording together at the savoy when you were back there um, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to get you on this episode, because, um, we're talking about hospitality and service skills and all that kind of stuff. And given that you've like gone through the Savoy, I don't mean, I don't know what training at Savoy entails, but I imagine it's some sort of rigorous style boot camp. So you must have a thing or two to say about, about good service.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, it's, um, it's interesting actually, Is it? Uh... Everyone um, assumes sort of similar to you do, that you you have like a a three-month, 17-hour-a-day training program. But it's it's really not that at all, actually. When I started, um, I had two days of of morning shifts where the lovely Alice Glazer um, did her best to whip me into shape. Um, But it has developed over the years. Um, Since I was there, the sort of four and a half years, we we sort of managed to increase that into a a two-week... sort of regime now so it's a bit more intense now than when i started
0: but uh, for good reason all right cool Look, we'll come back and talk a little bit more about savoy in a second joey um we know each other pretty well and have done for i don't know 10 or 15 years something like that talk to me a little bit about what you're up to at the moment what's your job
1: uh so i'm, I'm back in edinburgh um well i've just moved to just outside of edinburgh so i'm in east lothian now which is glorious but i'm back with montpellier's group so kind of back where it all began i used to work for them um again by spot 15 years ago when we would have first met i would have been in tiger lily so after that i moved uh into the brand world for a bit and then down to london for for seven or eight years um but delighted to be back with montpellier is an incredible company we've got seven venues in edinburgh um you know we've been going the best part of 30 years and I guess testament to that that longevity which is it's quite rare to have venues which have been open for that length of time without undergoing you know a massive transformation and a lot of that does come down to the hospitality yeah understanding our customers understanding our marketplace um and knowing how best to deliver exactly what the customer is looking for
0: yeah and I mean like 30 years there's going to be a lot of changes in the sort of habits of customers and drinks i mean you know drinks trends come and go so quickly now but over a 30-year period they you know there's, there's a complete revolution in terms of what people are drinking in fact probably to the point where it's almost gone full circle for montpelier's group like everyone's drinking what they were 30 years ago i
1: think that it definitely has yeah i mean it's funny isn't it you're right things have just come full circle and we've um we try to keep our finger as much on the pulse of the drinking trends as possible but it, it's difficult every customer is looking for something different um every venue can provide them with something different but i guess the one constant has got to be they've got to feel valued they've got to feel looked after and they've got to um first and foremost most importantly i guess is have that quality product and then it's backed up by the people behind it
0: yeah exactly so great segue what so what do we outside of the drinks that we serve and the way that we lure people in with you know special cocktails and you know you know, interesting ingredients and and decor. What is is it that defines a great host and great hospitality in your eyes?
1: Um, a great host, I I always think a great host, it, it just kind of sets everybody at ease. Um, and obviously in 2020, we, that's more prevalent than ever. It's what customers are looking for. They want to feel reassured. They want to feel relaxed as possible. Um, and I always, I do always go back to the Savoy. I remember being told years and years ago that um, Peter Dorelli was the, the perfect host because Peter durelli he would work the room so well that he would um, he'd do a lot of introductions. He would walk in, he would meet you, he would greet you. He would sit you down next to somebody else and be, ah, oh, Tristan, you must meet Pippa, you guys will get on. You two would talk for half an hour, 40 minutes. He'd swing by again, introduce you to somebody different, get you another drink. So you would leave the venue thinking that you'd spend the whole night with Peter Dorelli, But in theory, you'd probably spend 45 seconds with him.
2: He still does as well. would walk around the tables and everyone would sort of start off giving him a lot of peculiar looks like, who is this chap who's like hosting the room that's just sort of walked in? <laughs> and within sort of like 15, 20 minutes, all of these like slightly peculiar faces were all like chatting to each other and about the room and about the pictures and stuff. He he still just comes and like hosts.
0: <laughs> it's a serious talent though, isn't it? And that's a skill that, I mean, it's not, not a skill I have for sure. I, I feel like when I'm behind the bar, I'm reasonably good at talking to people. But to take that to, I mean, it's like 3D chess when you're kind of matchmaking p- patrons at the bar. You know, not not only, you know, you can introduce one person to another person, you know, cross your fingers and hope they get along. But to be able to do it effectively, to be able to start the conversation for both of them and kind of spin that plate, then shift over to another group of people, start spinning that one, go back and that's um. That's crazy skills right there, isn't
1: it? It takes such a level of awareness, I feel, just to know exactly what's going on at every point and every part of the room, around every corner. You know, they, they do need eyes in the back of their head and they need, um, just as you say, the matchmaking is a great analogy because it could easily fall flat on its face if you link two people who, are from different ends of the political spectrum or, you know, different ends of the social scale, it's a tricky one. But I Peter was incredible at that and I think it's it's a common thread that runs throughout um, world-class venues and world-famous venues. And if you, go, you hear people talk about the Bergang in Berlin, they always talk about the doorman who's been the same doorman there for 25 or 30 years. And you can't miss the guy, you know, covered in tattoos. And But he sets the tone for that whole venue and the whole experience you're going to have.
0: Mm. And There's a difference there in sort of hosting style, isn't there? Because you can be that kind of you can be a component of someone's evening by, you know, talking to them and being a character, Um, even if it's only for a small amount of time. Some people might come and visit your venue because they get that interaction with you. But then you can also be an amazing host, but be a lot more passive and be less visible or less not less present physically, but perhaps less present, you know, as a component of someone's evening um so like do you think do you think those sort of different types of hosting are appropriate to different venues or different occasions what do you think Pippa
2: um I think it's one of these things that like it's one of these skills that a lot of hospitality people is one of these things that you can't teach um and a lot of us fall into um positions or Uh, bars or venues or different sort of styles because of where your natural abilities sort of fall Mm. Um, and you'll sort of blend as a team in the way you know maybe you're more extroverted your your Peter Dorelli's will hold different positions to someone that's not as keen for you know lots of customer interaction but has a really fine eye for detail and wants to Mm. be um, your head of prep and wants to do all your research and all your backup house and have all that um, sort of thing in line.
0: So, yeah, I was, I'm thinking a little bit about like where different styles of hosting are appropriate because I would expect like a slightly different hospitality experience in, in respect to the host in a restaurant as opposed to a pub, as opposed to like a cocktail bar, as opposed to a cocktail bar in a hotel, Right. I mean, there's obviously different considerations from the customer's standpoint, like, you know, different styles of drinks, um, different budget for drinks, um, you know, even, you know, different different kind of, uh, you know, clothing or, or, or whatever. But the style of hosting in those places needs to be tailored to it as well. Right.
2: Yeah. And I think it's about reading your guest as well and judging What it is that they're after? Do do they need a lot of interaction? Are they there for a chat? Are they, you know, just like maybe having a day where they want to be left alone, feeling very reflective, or want to get some work done, and and sort of judging the tone of of who's sat across the bar from you, or in your restaurant, or wherever.
0: Yeah, I mean, like in cafe, for example, you these days it's probably not a good idea to engage in conversation with guests who are sat down drinking coffee with a laptop right because they're there basically to work so it's a completely different like toolkit of of hosting Mm. that you need to meet the requirements of that I mean you basically just need to make the drink and say hello and say goodbye right yeah (laughs) so in light of the current situation and what's going on now what how, how do you feel like hospitality and hosting has changed and I mean, there's obviously social distancing, that kind of thing, and in some, a lot of venues, staff are wearing masks. So, what do you think good hosts and like venues that do great hospitality can do to kind of mitigate those, you know, barriers really of, you know, communication with their guest?
1: I think um, hosting is is already started to take place outside of the venues. You know, it's with 99.9% of of people in the venue haven't booked in uh, the hosting starts in social media that Mm. almost sets the tone of voice for what customers can expect when they come in. Um, it starts that, you know, the next step is the voice on the phone. When you phone up to book, Mm. um, we're seeing more and more people calling up to reserve tables over, um, you know, it's not replaced the internet booking, but, but there's a lot more people phoning up because they want that reassurance. They want to feel that they're going to a safe and comfortable place, and it is tricky as well because we, we're initially we were looking at encouraging our staff to spend as little time at the table as possible, in guidance with uh, some you know government guidelines on that. But it, it, as you say, it's really tricky to to be that welcoming, warm, um, exceptional, gregarious host when you you can't spend as much time with your guests at the table. So we have hosts in every venue who greet people on the door. And it's, it, we encourage them to almost keep working the room. You know, the, When they're walking back, we want them to check in again on the table from a, a safe distance, make sure that everybody's um, happy, effectively, make sure they're reassured, make sure that they know what to expect when they come in, they know who their is going to be. Um, but I think we are, we're, we're looking to set the tone of voice and set the customer expectation way before they've gotten the door now. I think is a crucial element to it.
0: Mm, I think, like what you're saying about reassurance, is really important because I think a lot of a lot of bad experiences that people could have in the current situation are probably as a result of like fear and uncertainty about what is whether they should even be there in the first place. Mm. What what you know what are the right what's the right practices and protocols when they're there. How how they should actually go about ordering a drink because it changes from venue to venue, right? I was out for lunch today and I had to do it on an app that I couldn't download because I didn't have signal and they didn't have free Wi Fi. Epic fail. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, so and, and it's that fear of. I mean, generally, when people go out, like pre all of this situation, so much like you know of people's bad experiences, the guest bad experiences come down to you know, an expectation and a fear that they're not going to get what they want. In fact, that's a quote from um, Grand Budapest Hotel, isn't it? M Gustaf, he says, he says something like, you know, bad service is just basically, or you know, horrible people, uh, you know, bad service is just a result of people who are scared that they're not going to get what they want. And if you can reassure them then they'll, even the most wretched and horrible person will bloom like a flower, right? Um, And it's true, right? It is just kind of mismanaged expectations. so. I think what you're saying about reassurance is so key and whether that's through like signage, but even better if it's in person, if you've got someone sort of coming to the table, you know, almost dedicated, almost a dedicated um, member of the team whose role it is to reassure everyone and say, look, this is how we're doing things now. We're sorry if this inconveniences you, but it's for your safety and for our safety. Um, we want you to have a great time. Um, within the, these sort of parameters and um, you know if you need anything then please don't hesitate to ask
1: it's exactly right i mean we're also fighting this uphill battle i don't know if it's the same in england but in scotland we're not allowed any music at all
0: yes yeah, weird that one isn't it yeah. yeah is that because it's sort of the idea that it encourages people to group just people
1: to raise their their voices while they're talking And,
0: and oh so right yeah so they're potentially more. spreading yeah
1: exactly right. Um, so we're we're facing this battle where, you, you know, the age old thing of five, if you've been waiting five minutes at the bar, it feels like 15 minutes. If you've been waiting 15 minutes, it feels like an hour. Um, that time is just sped up, you know, exponentially now, because if people have been waiting two minutes with zero music and that little bit of anxiety about whether they should be out, you know, that feels like two hours.
0: They've not got like a three and a half minute song. Playing in no, the background so they can gauge no, they're, they're time. Uh, no, and you know
1: when you when you're serving a busy bar, and it's the same when you're waiting at a busy bar. If the bartender acknowledges you, and they, you know puts two fingers up to say two minutes, um, then you'll you'll happily wait an extra five minutes if you know that you're next in line to get served. And again, mm. we don't really have that situation because we've got our customers sat. They can be looking at the bar and seeing no customers, and while there'll be very busy bartenders behind there. Um, pumping out drinks as quick as possible. It's still that uncertainty as to when their drink is going to come, when their food's going to come. So it's even more these, these old school lessons of hospitality of get water in front of people. As soon as they sit down, um, you know, constantly check back two minutes in five minutes in, as soon as the drinks are down and then, um, be checking back after repeatedly It's because people do need that reassurance that they are the priority that they're getting looked after. And then we're doing everything in our power to make sure that they have as as good a time as possible.
0: Do you think then that's like a, a plus point for an app? Because at least then, you know, they're getting s- served and I'm doing sort of air quotes, um, you know, at their own pace, the pace that they expect. Now, even if there's a long wait, then... You know, probably, people are definitely more patient when they know that their order has been placed than when they haven't even placed an order.
2: Or if they know sort of where they are in, in relation to everyone else.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm kind of dead against the apps and it's, it's maybe because I'm getting old. But my issue with it is it, it it makes you feel that there's something different. You know, it doesn't really set me at ease ordering from an app. It makes me feel that there's I probably shouldn't be where I am. Um and it also it encourages you to default to what you would normally have. I'm mm. not inclined to scroll through. And we've we've noticed a few things since we reopened. And we, we made a commitment. Well, we, we still have the QR codes and we have the app, but we'll give out paper menus as much as possible. And It's all recyclable paper, but single use. Um, and we found that our average spend is dramatically increased from having that. Because we found that people who are using the app or using the QR code if you've got a table of four, they'll probably all have the same thing. Mm. The drinks order is going to be a beer. It's going to be a gin and tonic or a glass of wine, generally a house red or house, white. it's, we're not seeing people experiment or people indulge more when they're ordering just from the phone or from the app, because you're not going to scan through the whole menu. And because mm. it's a kind of serendipitous coincidence and because we printed all of our cocktail menus onto one large sheet. You know, an A3 sheet of paper. Effectively, um, we're seeing far more cocktail sales than we were pre-lockdown, which is incredible. Our, our sales are through the roof, and now the sales mix is much heavier weighted towards cocktails. And there's a few reasons for that. There's this concept of decision fatigue. It basically it goes along the lines that we're we're all making decisions all day, every day. You know, you wake up in the morning, Tristan, you you decide how you get your kids to school, what they're going to wear. Are you going to drive them, are they going to get the bus? Then you go into work, and it's order this, sell this. So we're constantly making decisions. And then when we get to uh, a venue, be that a bar or hotel or a restaurant, um, we're kind of done with it. And so any barriers mm. that we have in front of us about making that decision will just default back to the burger and chips or back to the glass of wine or to the beer. Mm. Whereas we're now in a slightly different world where all the customers have that extra time. You know, again, we were looking at our weekend sales mix. And that was where we primarily would see spirit mixes or beers or wine because if customers are waiting at the bar shoulder to shoulder with their other guests, they, they don't feel like looking at a menu. They don't feel they have the space or the time to do that. It's all a bit rushed. But now that our customers are able to sit at a table menu in front of them and have enough time to read through it, the spread, the sales mix is ginormous that we're getting. And we're also seeing you know, people being able to have our cheaper drinks, say the 5 pound cocktails on, this is allowing us, again, for people to trade up to more expensive drinks because they can see that there's value, but they're not just inclined to go for the cheap drink
0: because that's all they can see. Have you come up with any challenges with this sort of stuff, any sort of pushback from customers or from staff? Well, the, ma- the main challenge is, is really changing the way we
1: work because, you know, we've got seven venues which are high volume and used to doing prompt the majority of our sales, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday evening yeah. over the bar we've now had to completely change that and and realize that every single one of our drinks is going out of a dispense station so we've we've got restaurants you know so we are used to dispense service but not on a level like this and not with the increase in, in cocktail sales so that was a bit of a a lesson that we needed to learn and we needed to learn quickly so it's again it's been quite revolutionary you know if there are any good things to have come of this horrible situation it is I think perhaps an evolution of, uh, of hospitality in that we now run our, our bar pass much like a kitchen pass, mm. which the top 1% of venues, that is how they work. And this is something that we've had to adopt very quickly. Um, luckily we've got some, some really good staff in the venues who've uh, managed to take to it, um, in the time that we needed. So we, it was quite a, a, a slick transition into it, but, yeah it's one of these things you're not born for and you're not really prepared for yeah so first week was incredible
0: one of my one of my places um the the restaurant we've got down in Cornwall we've got the rum bar there, and similarly we've adapted it to be a dispense bar so um we don't we don't have people still the people people actually order from a specific station, not on the bar but separate to the bar. So we're keeping people away from the bar, but they're queuing to order from, you know, one member of staff, the manager, as it happens. Um, and then they send orders. They actually <laughs> they actually just send the orders. You, when I say send orders, you probably think, oh, they tap it into an iPad and it gets beamed over and prints out. But in the run bar, because it's quite um, primitive, let's say, um, they actually have like a, a kind of pulley system where they'll write handwrite the order, put a clothes peg on it, and then it gets pullied like, about four meters over the people's heads to the bar. And then the bar team will rip, pull the paper down and make the order. And then there's there's waiters <laughs> and waitresses um, d- uh, dispensing the drinks out to the customers. It, it's interesting sort of analyzing the, the sort of change in the customer server dynamic and trying to make sense of how that's changed on both ends. And for the team, it's I think it it's been hard actually, I think a lot of the bartenders are missing that contact with customers that kind of feedback um they're not used to running dispense bar they're used to kind of seeing the delight in the faces of a patron as they receive their you know zombie or, or whatever um and they're not getting that and there's that level of disconnect now, which is the same level of disconnect as a chef has um and we all know. Yeah. How chefs you know the behavior of chefs that well, they're famous for um you know they, they can be you know can be um a little bit fraught and um i'm I've started to see that in one or two members of the team like a frustration that they've probably not been able to put their finger on, but it's there and I might be wrong about it, but I feel like it's it's down to this lack of contact with the guest and that lack of feedback, and you know maybe that's partly our fault we should be training the team to feed back the drinks um to the bartenders as you would um with with a chef customer um situation but yeah there's a certain like level of frustration that seems to be coming out and that's 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 the way that i have have assessed
2: it i totally get that as well and i can i can see like it's a different kind of engagement that you have as well with um your guests to with your colleagues and and when it's busy as i think a lot of Venues have been unexpectedly um, throughout August because everyone's been at home and and, you know staycationing etc. When you're in a busy venue and you're chatting to your colleague it's you know you're chatting business I need this on this table I need this I need a refill of that you're not having like it's not a pleasant conversation it might be polite but it's not fun it's business and Mm. then you know if you're on a dispense bar you're just head down and cracking on but when you're sat with guests in front of you when you're not busting out drinks you're chatting to new interesting people um that are there having a great time and it and it's mostly um 90 of the time is you know fun great humor good banter like lots of chat and very positive um so i can see how not having that
0: Hmm.
2: um People are, are finding it, you know, strange to adapt
0: to. I think you're absolutely right. I think I think th- this is the thing. Good hospitality um, is it, it's good for both the guest and for for the bartender or, or the host, isn't it? Because you get that warm, fuzzy feeling inside when you can see that you have played a part in in making someone's night great um, through through your insane hosting skills. And when you don't have that. Then you're missing a part of your job. Part, and it for some people, it may be a part of their job that is their most rewarding part of their job. You know that that feeling that you've made a difference to someone's evening.
1: It's all about the product now, isn't it? Yeah. So it's it's all about the drink that's in front of the guest, the drink that's in the guest's hand. And
0: Tristan, I'm sure you're
1: the same as me that we back in our cocktail competition days. You know, any success that we did have was a a lot of that was done to what we told the judges to taste. Mm. And this is how we, you know, taste is, <clears throat> it's one of the few things which is, it takes it every single sense, doesn't yeah. it? You can train so your, your floor staff to the, the highest levels, but it's still very difficult if they're not seeing it made in front of them. You know, there's few better things in life than being sat at the bar, watching a bartender craft you something incredible. And if you can't see that, then it, it's, it, it's powerful to convey that full message. And again, this is, I feel, this is it requires a different style of training nowadays to make sure that the guest is going to have the best possible experience uh, and enjoy their drink as much as possible
0: you're right i think that's the thing that's missing from the guest side is and this is again it's venue specific right i mean if you go to a venue where you would normally have dispense bar and you're being dealt with by a you know a host uh, and and a, and a waiter waitress whatever um then not much has changed, right? Um, because you never expected to really be able to see that drink being made. And, and maybe you can from a distance, which would have been the same situation regardless. But if you're going to a venue where, I mean, like take Roadhouse, for example, I just saw that they've, they've closed now, they're done. Yeah, yeah. Um, not reopening. Um, but that's a kind of place where you want to see your drink being made, right? Because, you know, the, the, it's, a, yeah. it's a place that built its name on flair bartending and, and all that kind of stuff. And that's a venue where, A lot of people going would be going more for the entertainment and wow factor of the service than they would be for the quality of the drink.
1: But you you contrast that with a night jar, Tristan, which is the exact opposite, where, you know, the primarily table service. And and that is what they're doing. The drinks that they produce are, are art, they're culinary art. Yeah. Um, in the purest sense, because it's art that does tick all of your senses. And I feel that, the, you know, particularly in our generation as well, there was a huge amount of social, social currency attached to um, knowledge mm. and how you could talk about drinks and how much you knew about Armagnac, perhaps, would uh, decide how good a bartender you
2: were. <laughs>
0: um,
1: whereas what we actually, we should be training is artists instead. People who have that understanding of the the inks that he, you know the ingredients they're using and, and the effect that they have in drinks. Instead, we've got a load of art historians who everybody knows that's the most pointless degree.
0: my so. <laughs> right, back when I was when we first opened Pearl about ten years ago, um, when I was on bar, it used to be called the dissertation station um, because <laughs> I was I, I was famous for just boring. I don't think it was that boring really. I think I, I knew how to pick the right guest, but when um, you know i got someone that showed any sign of interest i'd give them the full history lesson on the drink or the or the product going into the drink or um just on myself yeah. you know anything that they, any you know <laughs> i'd say anything that they, they would want to hear and some people want that of course and especially in certain types of cocktail bar um people are there you know this is another facet of, of hosting people want to be educated they want to learn in in a way that doesn't make them feel stupid so and it makes them feel like they've got some you know pub ammo is that what you call it um yeah when that when when they've left that they can tell their friends and you know boast oh, i learned this from this bartender and when i was drinking this drink um you know it's all kind of social kudos isn't it that or social currency that they can
1: it's social currency yeah. exactly yeah all stuff they can recreate at home with their hosting which again is you know perhaps someone we've not touched on but it is becoming more and more important is that um you know people were doing it for three months over lockdown weren't they yeah Um, and I guess you go to bars to learn new tricks and to learn new things for your repertoire yeah which again it is tricky to convey
0: it is yeah Uh, so did you do any like additional training um or was it just kind of like a briefing like right this is what we're doing now this is the kind of the way in which service is changing or was it necessary to actually sort of spend a few hours going through some of this stuff
1: so we changed every single menu in all the venues before we launched, which um, I'm not sure whether it was a good idea or a, a terrible idea because, you know, opening six venues in in little shy of a month was exhausting, Yeah, um, but we felt it was the perfect time. And with the new, the new layout design of the physical menus that we were going for, we felt it was the right time to, to move the venues, the menus in each venue to that next level. Um, but we've noticed that there's more additional training, which needs to happen almost on a weekly basis. We're, we're flagging different elements, which we need to, to brush up our training on, um, especially more, more in the style of service and more in the, the speed and efficiency, but then also in the construction of the drinks themselves and the, the core elements of it. So again, I think now that we have every single drink going out over the pass, it allows us to scrutinize each drink to a different level. Because previously, if you are five deep at the bar, you can't keep an eye on every single drink, which is going over the bar and you can't be tasting every single drink. The bar manager can't do that. But now with every drink going through a single person who is monitoring for quality of, you know, presentation, um, we've noticed that our standards are improving. I would say, and every drink is increasing in quality. And now that next level is, is increasing the flavor. Mm. Increasing the quality of the the actual product itself of the liquid, of the balance um, of the complexity, etc., and that requires a, a whole new way of training. I feel, because again, if you just train people on the, on your menu drinks, um, or just train them on classic drinks, it's it's kind of like learning the guitar by reading sheet music.
0: Yeah, which it's you impossible. just never
1: do. You obviously exactly yeah because the the numbers. You know to put 20 ml of lemon juice with 50 ml of sugar with 50 ml of, of spirit and you're going to make something tasty, but that falls down if there's something wrong, if the sugar syrup hasn't been made to the correct ratio, if the lemon um, you know, it's a different yeah. acidity in the lemon you're using or the lemon juice has been in the fridge for four days. Um, we need to look at how we train. I think this is across the whole industry again. It's, it's We can't be training our staff just by reading either classic cocktail books or the, the specs for the specific venue that they work in. There needs to be an understanding of how, you know, all our taste elements of sweet, sour, salt, it's a work together in conjunction. And then how we use our equipment that we have, the shaker, the stirrer, um, you know, bar spoon, all these things, how we can use them to create the drinks that we're doing. I think that needs to be our first port of call in training. And then from there, that's when you learn how to make a Manhattan. That's when you learn how to make an aviation and then that's when you learn the the specific drinks on our on your list
0: okay so pippa tell us give us a little bit of insight into the way things work at the savoy because i american bar is for many people like such an important institution in the industry but you go in there and you have these amazing experiences great drinks great hospitality but it's rare that you ever get to sort of glean any insight of like the behind the scenes going on so how does how is hospitality and service set up in the american bar and what does sort of service look like from someone who's tended bar there for a while
2: um i think one of the things that surprised me most about when i first started working there um, is the amount of volume that you manage to get through on what's essentially quite a small team um so our daytime setup would be a host a server a bartender a bar back and a manager Um, and you could potentially get yourself in a position where you have a full bar and have to be able to run it on five people Um, so often your day team has to be you know the strongest team that you can get out obviously you know Monday Tuesday mornings you're also going to have you know quite a quiet bar but lots of tea and coffee and things like that and um, but on days like wednesday and saturday we'd get a midday uh, matinee from the theater next door so you would get a really strong and um, sort of from twelve thirty till about 3 p.m midday rush where the bar would often be full and up to a waiting list as well and um, evening times a little bit different um from sort of 4.30pm you would have a full team um, and there'd be a bit of a crossover period whilst we're in a busier section of the day um, and then the, the day team goes home and the evening takes over um, so even at that position uh, in the evening you'd have three people on the floor one person on the door two bartenders a manager and a bar back as well so again still quite a small team for you know um, i think i remember our busiest day over christmas 2018 um where we did a full day of i think it was 897 covers in the end um which
0: With five we, of you
2: yeah well seven of us <laughs> and a swap over in the middle uh, i remember lying on the floor after that shift because i actually just couldn't move the thought of breaking down the bar was a bit too much we all had a five minute sit down and decompress and then managed to get on with it
0: so is it the case that everyone works the floor um or are they designated? because you've got the manager roaming around the place but do you, all bartenders work the floor or are some of them confined to the bar space
2: yeah, pretty much um, we learned very quickly that versatility is key um, and the more people that you have that are able to do other people's roles, especially in a small team, um, you know, it just makes your life easier. Um, so we tried to make sure that everybody has done at least a few shifts in sort of every role so that you can understand um, it helps make you do your job better. So if you're on the floor... Um, Having to do a few host shifts, especially when it's busy and stressful, um, knowing that you need to sort of catch everyone at the door, it means that if the host is busy sorting um, another table or getting somebody's coats or something, uh, for whatever reason they're not there, people started to get really good at picking up um, people at the door when the host wasn't there. Um, It gives people like a bit of a better all-round perspective of not just doing their own job, People like Martin Hulak and Michele Mar- Mariotti uh, and Eric were all really good. That if you're on the hay station, you've got a great view all the way down the stairs, pretty much. Um, so you can see people coming up. And I remember seeing Martin and Michele often like sprinting around the bar up to the host stand to go and collect people as they're coming in um so it gave everybody sort of an opportunity for a better sort of holistic overview of the place and um, same with bar as well and um, everyone that worked on the bar also worked on the floor and um, it just helped people with communication and understanding of, of everyone else's roles especially when it gets um, Busier and a bit more stressful. I found people were a bit more flexible with each other when they've got a better understanding.
0: And what is it? Do you, is there anything specific to the Savoy in respect of training, uh, um, hosting skills, and you know the tone that is that should be set with the guest? Um, you know, is there, was there like a Savoy style to the kind of dialogue that you're supposed to be putting across? Or specific phrases that needed to be used or could be used?
2: I think a lot of that um, just comes off of, you know, you, you stand off the shoulders of the people that have worked before you. Um, and what's really great is that someone that's been open that amount of time Um, Or I guess since the reopening for us in 2010, there's always crossover with people that have worked with people before you um, and you naturally pick up things from watching people host or watching people on the floor. And there's sort of things that you learn from people that that get passed down generation to generation. And, um, you know, you learn so much by just watching other people um, interact with guests and seeing how they do it. The second part of that um, would probably be service standards that we get held accountable to. Um, So four times a year we'd have uh, LQA visit and we'd also have two times a year visit from Forbes. So Forbes is like the five star um, quality assurance and the checklist of sort of service protocols that they expect you to follow to, to get the five star rating is really, really quite intense. Um, it's mostly time-driven um, and, you know, those sort of set standards and protocols that you have to hit. Um, and it's nearly impossible to to hit them all, really. I think the Beaufort bar got um, a 90-something percent score once. Um, not that his ego needs to get any bigger, but Joe Lewis-White got a 97 percent, so a near-perfect score once, um, which he's very proud of. But a lot of the time, actually... Um, Ours would be sort of sixty, seventy percent um because of the volume that we were doing as well, makes it really difficult to hit that score with everybody.
1: Pippa, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember hearing that all the employees of the Savoy were given, you know, like a two hundred page guidebook on how to act with different guests. So it was how you would greet visiting dignitaries effectively. If it was the Sultan of Brunei you had to bow to a certain level. If it was you know a, a minor British member of the royal family there was a different greeting. Is that true is that a thing or is that just an urban myth?
2: I wish it was true I think it's a bit of an urban myth um, what we did get was um what I guess is probably a small book um, on like stories about the Savoy so lots of different unique things that have happened in over the history. Um, and there's lots of, like, I, mean, I think there's a separate book as well on, like, facts. So, for example, um, the fountain in the front entrance is the exact turning circle of a London cab. So if you were to turn a London cab around there, it would literally perfectly go around and around all day. Um, and I think, actually, that the London Black Cab's turning circle was modelled mm. off of the Savoy Fountain. Oh, really? Um, and that, you know, it's the only road in the UK that is the wrong way around, driving on the opposite.
1: Yeah, you drive on the right, don't
0: you? Again, looking at the kind of current situation, how do you think um, hosts, bartenders, need to adapt their style of hospitality in order to overcome the sort of barriers, that, both physical and metaphorical, that have been put in place so you know obviously distancing keeping distance masks visors this sort of thing what tips would you give to someone to sort of overcome these challenges so that they can still dele- deliver the necessary level of hospitality when a guest can't actually see them smile
2: um i think there's definitely like a level of communication that needs to be upped and um, i've just moved back to london from Uh, my parents' place last week um, and out in the countryside actually people were quite good at um, making sure that people are hitting all the right things, signing up for track and trace and sanitising hands and um, being seated in specific areas etc. I think what's really important for people to remember is um, that as guests as well and I found this walking into bars in the last week. it can be a bit unclear on like what you have to do or where you have to walk and people kind of get to the door and stand and are a little bit like confused about where i can go and what i can touch etc so i think um people just need to make sure that their communication is really clear to customers as they're coming in um what they need to do like please wait here we'll be with you in a minute etc just um be really clear to customers what you want from them
0: yeah i I've, I've, I've we've had some challenges um with my restaurant in Cornwall, because on the uh, there's, t- there's two objectives, I guess, to what we need to do um, this year. One is deliver a level of hospitality that we think is, is is good and and that you know keeps guests happy, so they have a great experience. But the other one, of course, is um, there, w- there's now a responsibility to kind of police um, our guests in order to ensure their safety and the safety of our staff. And of course we have all these government recommendations as to what we should be doing and how we should be managing the flow of people and, you know, hand sanitizing, contact tracing, um, group sizing, uh, all this kind of stuff. And for the team, it's been really tricky to do this because although we brief guests when they arrive and we have signage up, once they've had a few drinks, um, you know, they, feel um that you know they they should be allowed to have other people come and join their table or they should be able to join their table to someone else's or they should be able to walk straight up to the bar and order a drink and when they're challenged on that you know it can become not hostile necessarily but a little bit fraught and then of course you know you're not you're not meeting the expectations of the customer even though their expectations aren't really um you know realistic because what they're expecting is the sort of service that they've had in the past. Um, And that's just not possible um, in this current environment. So we've found it's been a really delicate balance and we've had some bad reviews as a result of this. We've had, you know, people writing things saying, you know, Oh, I had to get in an argument because they wouldn't let me, um, you know, sit here. And we had two friends coming to join us, but we were told there was no room and, and all this kind of thing. And, it's it's really frustrating, of course, because all of the measures that are put in place are designed to protect our guests, and yet they're the ones that are fighting us for for it.
2: It's hard, isn't it, having to be the fun police, when most of the time your job is to like create the fun and enable it and have fun with your guests, and then there's now been this horrible flip where people aren't respecting the rules and I get it you know after a few months of not being able to um venture out and and socialize etc um it's difficult to have to you know cut people off and tell them no all the time and um, I think we just have to be a bit more of a united front and um you know if everybody's echoing the same rules then hopefully it'll, it'll start to sink in and people will start to to get it
1: yeah it, it's I think we've we've had A lot of our really, you know, good tools taken away from us as well in these situations. To defuse any kind of argument in a bar, you know, it's hands on the shoulder often helps. Your body language, your facial expressions, or you take one member of the group away and get them to self-police the group. And you're right, it's purely human nature that if you go out, you want to socialize. And if you see someone you've not seen for, you know, we're looking at six months now, aren't we, really? People might not have seen each other for probably longer. You want to go and have a chat with them. And as you say, Tristan, if we are giving people drinks and we're, we're encouraging them to relax and, and treat it like they they normally would and then to put these boundaries in place, it does, it ruins the expectation they have, it ruins their evening. They feel that they're being unfairly treated or persecuted because, as I say, six months ago, they could pretty much do what they want. So it's a really fine balance, isn't it? I think. You do just have to, as much as possible, set the tone when they come in, almost lay out the the boundaries, be that in the confirmation email they get or with the in-venue signage explaining what the rules are. And then, Pippa, to your point as well, you've got to be a united front. If people aren't obeying the laws that are set out, then they have to be asked to leave for the safety of the other guests, for the staff and probably for themselves as well.
0: Do you think this might actually change hospitality going forward? Can you you imagine some venues just... Operating like safe spaces where people can be really I guess can be super confident that they're not gonna contract future viruses. Tiger
1: League is a monster of a venue. It does a huge amount of money every week and has done for fifteen years. Um but we're now actually taking the same amount of money we were pre lockdown, but just spread out across the whole week. So our Mondays are way up, but our Fridays and Saturdays are down. Our level of service has increased, because of the points I mentioned earlier about every drink being checked when it goes over the bar from dispense. Um, customer service levels are up, the customer satisfactions up because they're not four deep at the bar. Everyone is getting a bit more attention. So it's something we are considering, whether we go back to filling the bar on a weekend, or whether we keep it as, as much as possible table service only so really interesting some of we never would have considered because we've never been put in a yeah. position where we have to do it so i think a lot of venues are going to find similar yeah. things
0: um and i mean do you think that there's a danger that venues who aren't able to kind of adapt this environment in respect of hospitality um and the quality of the service they're offering and and how they're managing the situation do you think you know, are they in tr- could they potentially be in trouble. Do you how judgmental do you think guests are on the kind of um, measures that are implemented in venues? Do you th- do you think that there are some guests who will, are actively avoiding venues because they don't think that you know they're, they're being sort of strict enough on 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 the measures?
1: One hundred percent. Yeah, we we hear it in the feedback from our. From our guests, we see it in reviews, um, but we luckily are getting praised for the measures we have in place, but they are calling out other venues in the city who who aren't doing it. And that's, again, it's why our, thankfully, why our sales are up and why our, our business levels are maintained across the board. And the feedback we are hearing is that because people do feel comfortable and feel yeah. safe
0: coming in. Good stuff, well, well done to you. Right, slight change attack. Can you talk a bit about how hospitality extends beyond just the host and the chat the banter or you know the 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 welcoming smile of the bartender or hostess or whatever it might be how does that sort of filter into the rest of the operation so I'm thinking about things like the atmosphere the lighting the music and obviously we know those things are important but how do you kind of create a whole kind of complete hospitality experience that is sort of synergizes with itself with those other tools
1: it's interesting i think it needs to be adaptable you know it's i'm sure we've all worked in venues where you have your preset lighting levels with a little (laughs) sharpie mark on the dimmer switch um and that goes on at five o'clock or at seven o'clock or or ten o'clock it changes but i think something that we, we often try and do is just it's reading the room and it's being able to react to what that current um feel is because it's such an untangible thing atmosphere isn't it you can't pinpoint why it is
0: i always think if you notice it then it's not working that well it's like it's at its best when it's sort of there in the background subconscious you know
1: and it's, it's the same with all the elements if you notice that the music's too loud when you walk in then it's probably too loud again if it's too quiet and you're hearing people same with with smells and aromas um If you have big, heavy incense and you notice that when you when you walk in, it's it's never a good thing. Whereas you go to somewhere like I always mentioned the Addition Hotel, you walk in there and there's I think it's the Labo Tenoir is their smell that they have in there. And you walk in and you don't quite notice it initially, but you smell it somewhere else and it instantly reminds you, transports you back to the Addition Hotel. I think that's the key. That's the crucial element to that side of it, and it's, it's, but it's being able to react to, to the tempo of the of what the customers are expecting or how they're acting within the venue, which I think is crucial to it. Which is where you need strong management who are have that awareness. Again, it comes back to awareness. It comes back to knowing exactly what's going on at any one time in the venue and being able to react to it.
0: The smell thing's an interesting one, isn't it? But uh, and, and music as well. I, music's such a tough one because. You know, there's the choice of music and then there's the placement of speakers and there's the volume and getting consistent sound throughout an entire venue. I've always found it to be incredibly different. I mean, it's why you have, you know, specialists come in and, and do this stuff because you get these sort of hot spots of loudness and then other bits where you can't really hear it. And I've, I've, I've found it really tricky to get right.
1: JJ Goodman, when I worked for him, had a, a really interesting take on it with, with the music. It would be that He always wanted it slightly too loud. So if people came in on a Monday, like a Monday afternoon for drinks and the music was too loud, they might have a drink and then go because it's not right for them. But they would know that if they weren't out on a Thursday or a Friday and they wanted to go and party somewhere, they would remember that the LCC, London Cocktail Club, the music was too loud in there. So those guys are always up for a party. So they would head straight there. And it really worked. You know, you would get people who I was here on a Tuesday and then they thought we'd come back tonight. And that was his his mantra and mentality from it. You know, they stuck to it and it served them well.
0: Well, that's kind of the opposite of adapting, right? I mean, that sort of stating Mm. this is what we are. It's loud. Um, You know, if you want it, then great. If you don't, then probably better you go somewhere else this evening. Um, which is I mean that's the that's the other way of doing it right if you adapt too much then it becomes unclear Mm. exactly what you are
2: yeah open yourself to people asking you to turn the music off so that they can get on their business (laughs) calls
0: yeah 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 exactly yeah what about dealing with regulars how what what do you have a joey at um do you have any kind of incentive programs for loyalty and in addition to that do you have any kind of Training or direction for the team as to how to look after regulars. I don't know, it could be like a free drink or opportunity to come to a tasting for free. Or, I mean, we've done stuff where we've had regulars come and help us design the next cocktail list where we've used them as taste testers and that kind of stuff. You do anything like that?
1: Yeah, definitely. We, we have discount key rings. It's, it's a bit different in Scotland. You can't really do any um, drinks specials, mm. you can't have a happy hour, for example. But if people are a member of a, a club or society, then they can be entitled to discount drinks at any time of the day. So, we we give out um, key rings generally. We find work and it gets you a percentage off in the venue. Um, we do. We often host when we're changing up our wine lists. We'll we'll get the our regulars' feedback. We'll invite them to do a little tasting with us and show them what we're putting on. And while they don't have the you know definitive choice in it we we are led by what they what they tell us because at the end of the day they're the ones that are going to be drinking it they're the ones that are going to be enjoying it in the venue as i was saying earlier we've been we've been going nearly 30 years up in montpellier so we still have some of the same faces coming in so they're as much part of the furniture as as anything else and while we don't have anything like the savoy with well the mythical thing of the savoy of a, a guest book on how to greet people we all know that they they do have their certain quirks and that is part of your induction process is that as much as possible you're introduced to the the regulars that come in you're on first name terms with them all um and that does it extends into all the venues it's not quite as much as, as Montpellier's as is our local bar um which started all but yeah it, it's what our business is based on is repeat custom and i think that's even more important now than ever
2: i really like that um the idea of having regulars come in and like taste check your Potential cocktail menu or wine list. I've not heard of people doing that before, and I think that's um, that's really cool. But a lot of what Declan would um, tell us at the Savoy, and I see this quite frequently um, in a lot of you know creative uh, bartending competitions and stuff. Um, people get so wrapped up in trying to make like the most impressive um, rotovats ingredients for themselves, the most like bartender technique savvy, amazing drinks, that actually we've lost like a little bit of people making things Mm. that are just really tasty. And I think a lot of what people need to do a bit more is go to their regular guests, the people that come to pay for your drinks and get their opinion on stuff. If it doesn't taste good, it doesn't matter what you've done to it or how you've got there. And I think we've lost a little bit of that process along the way. Well,
0: yeah, now this is a good point, actually. I think that in in a way, bartending has borrowed certain undesirable hospitality um, styles from from baristas. Now, if you think about certain craft coffee bars, um, the hospitality is getting better. But uh, up until a few years ago, the hospitality was really standoffish. It was a kind of, you know... I think, uh, an over-importance assigned to the barista, self-signed to the barista. And I feel like um, there's been a emerging a, a of, of barista and bartender culture and skills, sharing of knowledge that's been really positive, some really good stuff come out of it. But I think that some of the bar industry borrowed a little bit of that superiority. And um, what we have ended up with is, a bartender who is, as you say, crafting some vap or sous vide infusion, this, that, and the other, where they're using all these ingredients and all these complex menu terms, um, almost designed to confuse. And this guest who wants to have a tasty drink, wants something nice, but the bartender takes this sort of stance that you couldn't possibly understand how complicated this drink is.
1: I think you're totally right. It's something that we try and do in the venues: is make make our drinks descriptions as simple as possible and use flavors and words and, and emotive terms that people can understand. But then that, if we, if all the drinks were simple and we're going back to, you know, a raspberry mule or something, then the bartender isn't as engaged. So it's about finding that, that balance between doing something innovative, keeping the bartenders, you know, engaged and upskilling them with new techniques, but then making it transferable and translatable mm-hmm. to the customer so that if they just want a porn star martini with passion fruit and vanilla and whatever else. And they, they can get that, but then if they want to find out a little bit more about it, then they can see that we, oh, you make a passion fruit and vanilla cordial that you use. Okay. Interesting. And it, so there is, it opens up to conversation as you were saying before Tristan about the dissertation station. If people want to engage with the bartender and, and understand a little bit more about the craft, they can, if they just want a really tasty drink. With flavors that they've heard of and flavors that they can comprehend, then they get that too. So, I think you're totally right. It's, it's having something which is delicious is the most important thing that the customer can appreciate. And then, if they want to find out a little bit more,
0: I, th- I think the trick is treating both of those customers equally. Right, the one who wants the pornstar mm. martini, for example, you know, is is after you know is also after a good quality experience and value for money just as the one who's really interested in your dissertation about how you managed to rotavap some coffee beans into a, a, a tequila, um, that obviously they required, you know, a different style of hosting and you're going to be given different information, but that you shouldn't look at one as a better customer than another, because they're both there for a good time and they're both going to pay their bill.
1: Uh, definitely
0: not. Just to close this one off. Um, I want to hear about a sort of memorable hospitality experience that you both had something and it it doesn't, it could be a pub, it could be a restaurant. It could be, it could be going to the theater, it could be anything, but something that sort of stuck in your mind as "Wow, That's how you do it. Philip
1: Duff, uh, when he was at door 74,
0: I remember it being freezing cold outside and,
1: and we would kind of get nipping out for cigarettes because we were bad boys back then. It's obviously it's a buzzer system on the door, isn't it? So you, you, You've got to come in. And I remember he would just always open the door and he'd be like, come on in out the cold there. Come on in. And he'd just, that was his line every time. I don't know why it always stuck, but you, he would sit you down. You'd go out and your drink would be put in the freezer. And then when you came back out, you'd be welcomed in again, like it was the first time you came. You'd be sat down, your jacket taken, drink comes out of the freezer onto the bar top. Yeah, as I say, genuine hospitality.
2: I'd say for me, I think like one of my biggest wow moments um probably just after I sort of first started at the Savoy um, was the first time I visited Attaboy in New York. Um, and it was a recommendation, I think probably from Dominic Whisson or Declan or, or both. Um, and, you know, from moving from Dive Bar Porto in Leeds to, to the Savoy had already kind of blown my mind in um, sort of the, the art of cocktails, I guess um in that year and my my world had been expanded massively um and then from going to my first trip to attaboy the the quality and consistency of drinks um was just something that i'd never seen before um and you know i i think actually i attaboy is my favorite bar in the world by a long way i absolutely love it there so i am a big fangirl to begin with but um that first experience and you know, five years ago being a bit more sort of starry eyed um, it's just an amazing place. And I think that really blew me away and gave me a lot of like motivation for wanting to learn more and do better and go back and like relearn basics and classics and sort of go back a step or trying to go forward.
0: Inspiring stuff. Great. Thank you guys for your time. This has been a wonderful chat. Um, hope you've enjoyed it too and i hope everyone listening has enjoyed as well thank you for tuning into today's episode of bar chat visit diageobaracademy.com for access to more podcast episodes and exclusive content see you next time